This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And, of course, we're looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, it's the story of Frank Breyer and the tragedy of the British transport ship Rona in 1943. Despite being the largest loss of U.S. troops at sea due to enemy action in a single incident, the full details of the attack weren't released until 1967. Here's Professor of Political Science at Grove City College, Paul Kengor, to tell the rest of the story. Any veteran of World War II can tell you stories. But for Frank Breyer, his story, one he could never forget, was a terrible one. It began the moment his ship, called the Rona, was sunk. When that ship went down on November 26, 1943, Frank's life changed forever. And very few people beyond the men tossed into the sea ever knew what happened. The HMT Rona was an 8,600-ton British troop ship carrying mostly an American crew to the Far East Theater. It went down the day after Thanksgiving in the Mediterranean off the coast of North Africa, the victim of a German missile. But it was not just any German missile. This was, it seems, the first known successful hit of a vessel by a German rocket-boosted radio remote-controlled glider bomb one of the first true missiles used in combat. It was, in effect, a guided missile, and the Nazis had achieved it first. And the results were immediately destructive. According to the website that today serves as the official online gathering spot for the Rona Survivors Association, more lives were lost on the Rona than on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. Over 1,000 boys, to be exact, lost their lives, and their government kept the entire episode a secret out of fear of information being leaked about the power of the German guided missile. The government feared the effect on the morale of the U.S. military and the wider population. The hit was so devastating, states the Rona Survivors Association, that the U.S. government placed a veil of secrecy upon it. The government, it said, still does not acknowledge this tragedy, and thus most families of the casualties still do not know the fate of their loved ones. It's very sad that only now, long after the few survivors are even fewer, the Rona survivors are attempting to hold reunions, over 70 years after the event. The secrecy was so tight that Frank Breyer's daughter, Mary Jo, spent painstaking years with her dad trying to tug out details and piece together what occurred. Dad was haunted frequently by this, Mary Jo told me, but it was not so much the sinking of the ship, but his personal inability to save many men. Those awful moments of fire remained seared in Frank's brain. As the ship burst into a giant fireball, Frank manned the ropes of a lifeboat packed with injured soldiers. He was ordered to hold the ropes tight and lower the boat with the soldiers into the water below. This was no simple task, especially in a chaotic, panic situation. A lifeboat filled with men isn't light. That was proven quickly as the ropes broke and Frank watched the men below him in his care fall to their death in the sea. 
The image of those men slipping from his hands into the abyss horrified him. But the nightmares, they would come later. In the meantime, Frank too was forced to abandon ship, which submerged within merely an hour. For his own crowded lifeboat, he and five other men seized a floating wooden bench. As the darkness slowly enveloped them with night setting in and with the fear of still more German missiles, Frank led the group in reciting the Lord's Prayer. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, there were none on that wooden bench in the water that night either. Frank and his group with their floating wooden bench took turns. Four of them would float on the bench and two would hang on the ropes. They feared not only Germans, but sharks, and for good reason. Anyone familiar with the horror story that was the USS Indianapolis knows how the sharks slowly but steadily devoured the boys floating in the water over a course of several long days. The crew of six tried to get some sleep while floating in the cold water, but couldn't. They needed to stay focused on holding on to their floating device, the bench. To their great fortune, they were in the water only for about six hours. Just as the sun started to rise, they spied a rescue boat on the horizon. It was a mine sweep that picked them up. They were taken to a facility in Algeria to recover. But for Frank, there was little emotional comfort. All he could think about was the wounded soldiers that he couldn't save. But worst of all, Frank could not share what he was going through. They were ordered not to write or talk about the Rona with their family or even among themselves. The military censorship was so strict that they were threatened with court-martial if they ever disobeyed. And so Frank kept it secret all the way to the grave, tormenting him yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, night after night throughout the rest of his life. Frank Breyer died on January 4th, 2016 at age 92, seven decades after the sinking of the Rona. He now at long last rests in peace. Let us at long last remember him and the entire crew of the Rona. And thanks again to Paul Kengor. And that was his story and his contribution. And Paul is a professor of political science at Grove City College and the author of A Pope and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the extraordinary untold story of the 20th century. And there are so many untold stories of World War II and so many of our nation's battles. We tell them here on Our American Stories. And if you have one yourself, family members, something from your family history, and I don't care if it goes as far back as the Civil War. We had one great lady from Memphis who had sent some Civil War letters to us. And we recorded one, and it was just extraordinary. And she'd kept it as a namesake, as a keepsake for her family heritage and her family lineage. So send them to us. We'll have them recorded by you. Again, that was Paul Kengor, and that is Frank Breyer's story and the story of the Rona and all those forgotten men and unknown men who died and perished on that tragic day. Their stories all here on Our American Stories.
Abbott and Costello program, starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Brought to you by Camel, the cigarette of costlier, properly aged tobacco. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. He was one of the best ever at his job in the entertainment world. A job, a role, you don't see much anymore. Bud Abbott was a straight man. The straight man of the comedy duo Abbott and Costello. In a comedy duo, the straight man's role seems simple. Set up the funny man for the laughs, or the funny woman. But it is harder than it appears and requires great skill, even greater timing, and tremendous discipline and selflessness. There was a time in American comedy history when straight men ruled the comedy landscape. Dean Martin of Martin and Lewis, Dan Rowan of Rowan and Martin, George Burns of Burns and Allen, and Desi Arnaz, the husband of Lucille Ball and the consummate straight man. No one was better at this job than Bud Abbott, who died on this day in history in 1974. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to find them. That's hillsdale.edu. Bud Abbott was born on October 2nd, 1895 in a beach and entertainment town an hour south of New York City, Asbury Park, New Jersey, known for producing one of America's biggest rock stars, Bruce Springsteen. Show business was in Abbott's blood. His father was an advance man for traveling acts. His mom performed as a bareback horse rider for the Ringling Brothers Circus. School could not compete for the attention of the young Abbott, who dropped out in 1909 to work with his father at Coney Island, another beachfront entertainment town, this one in Brooklyn, New York. Abbott kicked around in the entertainment world for nearly two decades, moved around a lot, and started to toy with the role of straight man on the stage with his wife, Betty, and with other burlesque acts. Then came Abbott's life-changing moment. He was working at the Casino Theater in Brooklyn in 1936, when the comedy duo Lyons and Costello was scheduled to perform. Lyons, the straight man, was sick that night and couldn't make the gig. Costello heard that the man working the cashier had experience performing as a straight man, and he asked him to sub for his partner. That man was Bud Abbott, and the rest, well, it was history. The improvised set was a huge hit with the audience, earning big laughs from a very tough crowd. And the comedy act known as Abbott and Costello, it was born that night. They gained national attention quickly in 1938 when they became regulars on the hit radio show, The Kate Smith Hour. One of their earliest radio performances turned out to be one of their very best, one that would become a signature bit and an American classic. It was the Who's On First routine, a routine they wrote with comedy writer John Grant. The routine was based on a simple premise, a miscommunication over a baseball lineup. The routine uses repetition and slowly escalating frustration to tremendous effect, the two performers playing perfectly to each other's strengths. Costello, the bombastic and emotive character, and Abbott, the oblivious and unflappable one. You're going to be the manager of the retired actors' baseball team? Yes. I would like to join the retired actors' baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I'll know them, and I'll meet them on the street or in the home here, I can say hello to them. 
Oh, sure. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. Oh, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Stinky Fields. Stinky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Bobber. Booby Bobber. I know. <laughs> but let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... names on the baseball team. Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base. Sure. Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? <laughs> the guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me for? Now, don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's at first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. And it became one of their signature pieces. By 1944, they had the bit copyrighted to protect against copycats and imitators. In 1939, they appeared on Broadway in the streets of Paris and soon after signed a film contract with Universal Studios. Their second movie, Buck Privates, released in 1941 at the dawn of a big world war, was a huge hit, grossing more than $10 million, the highest grossing film Universal had had to date. The duo became gigantic film stars during World War II, making light comedies to provide relief to a nation at war, a nation in need, desperate need, of some laughs. Their 1945 film, The Naughty 90s, introduced the Who's On First sketch to the entire world. Abbott and Costello's popularity began to wane after the war. Low-budget efforts such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello Go to Mars didn't help matters. Today, the United States planned to claim a whole planet through the most extraordinary expedition of our time, a flight through space by rocket ship. I hereby claim Mars in the name of the United States of America. Yes, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello go to Mars in the funniest movie on Earth. You'll howl when their misguided missile lands them on the manless planet Venus amid acres and acres of gorgeous man-hungry girls. The duo made their last movie together, Dance With Me, Henry, in 1956. Lou Costello died three years later on March 3, 1959. But Abbott, well, he attempted a comeback in 1961, but to no avail. Quote, Nobody could ever live up to Lou, he told people wherever he met them. It was true. From the great heights of show business, Abbott had descended to great depths. Work was scarce, but Abbott was able to generate some income, providing voiceover work for the Hanna-Barbera animated series, The Abbott and Costello Cartoon Show. But it wasn't enough. In 1970, Bud Abbott suffered the first in a series of strokes and was soon living off his monthly Social Security check, supported by his two children. Victoria Wheeler, his daughter, was interviewed by National Enquirer and told him this, quote, the doctors don't hold any hope for him. He has cancer. My father is a very sick man. He's in a lot of pain and hallucinates a great deal. 
Doctors say he has three months, maybe six to live, but only God can tell. His condition changes from day to day. Sometimes he seems okay, and in the next moment, he's incoherent and oblivious to those around him. Well, after that article ran, Abbott and his family were swamped with letters and cards of support from across the world. Many included money. In September of 1973, the magazine ran a follow-up story with Bud's wife of 55 years, Betty, doing the talking. Here's what she said. We couldn't possibly answer all the letters, but I want to thank everybody. And please, tell everybody Bud isn't alone. We've been together for 55 years. I say my prayers for my husband every night, but I want to keep him with me for as long as I can. Abbott died on this day in history in 1974 at the age of 77. He was surrounded by loved ones and by his family. How good was Bud Abbott? His partner, Lou Costello, knew how good he was. Costello insisted on splitting their earnings 60-40 in Abbott's favor. Quote, Comics are a dime a dozen, he explained. Good straight men, they're really hard to find. Groucho Marx agreed. He was the greatest straight man ever, Groucho told reporters shortly after Abbott's death. As for the Who's On First routine, it was memorialized at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Abbott and Costello are among the very few honorees from outside the game. In 1999, Time Magazine named the routine Best Comedy Sketch of the 20th Century. An early recording was placed in the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in 2003. Abbott and Costello each have three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for their work in radio, television, and motion pictures. But perhaps the greatest honor of all for Bud Abbott came in 2009. This Jersey kid from Asbury Park with dreams of show business success was inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. The life of Bud Abbott, who died on this day in history in 1974. His story, here on Our American Stories. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's oh. names on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. <laughs> This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, from faith to science, and everything in between. And we love to hear your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. And it can be about just about anything that matters to you, your life, your family, and your community. This next story is about a man named Bert Rossica. Bert was born in South Philly, and his story, The Light in the Hallway, picks up with his dad moving his pharmacy business and his family to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. The house was new. We just moved from the city to the suburbs. It was a happy house. It was a happy life. When I was five years old, life seemed so effortless. 
No adversity, no melodrama, only happiness. Now that I am a man, I frequently ask myself, what did dad do to make it all seem that way? It couldn't have been easy. There had to be pressures. A new house, a new store, a new business, two mortgages, and business was slow at first. One night, I woke up from my sleep and I was lying awake in my bedroom. It was blue and it smelled new, just like the rest of the house. I remember seeing the ceiling light. I always stared at the ceiling light in the hallway from my bed. It was square and black and it looked like a colonial type of light. Everything in the house was colonial. I was thinking about its newness for whatever reason, I don't know, I'm just lying there. When dad came home from the store, it was late. I didn't know exactly what time it was, but I knew it was late. The store closed at nine o'clock, but I knew it was much later than that. He usually stayed and did paperwork after the store closed. There was no one else to do it, so he did it. After standing on his feet for 12 hours, he stayed and did paperwork. It had to be done, so he did it. You do what has to be done, he always said. He didn't just say it, though. He lived it. So that night, as usual, he stayed and did paperwork. When he arrived home, Mom had his place set at the kitchen table and had dinner waiting for him. I lay still in my bed, listening. I could see in my mind's eye Mom and Dad sitting at the table. Dad at his place at the head, Mom next to him on his left. It's where they always sat so they could be close to one another. At this time of night, it was just the two of them. But they still sat in their usual places. Only Dad ate. Mom had already eaten hours earlier with us. She ate with us while Dad was still working. This, again, was typical. They were talking, and then Mom asked Dad how many scripts he filled that day. Script is shorthand for prescriptions, the lifeblood of any apothecary business. When she asked the question, I detected anxiety in her voice. I was too young to know exactly what anxiety was, but I detected it nonetheless. I detected something. Seventeen years later, I would hear that same anxiety in Mom's voice again as Dad lay dying of cancer. Mom would walk in the room, call his name, not knowing if he would be conscious enough to respond. I didn't know it when I was five, but it was that very same anxiety that I heard. It wasn't as severe that night that I'm lying awake in my bed listening to mom and dad at the kitchen table, but it was there just the same. Then I heard dad answer mom's question. One word, two, he said gently. That's all he said. As I lie in my bed, I thought about 
How many prescriptions was good or a lot? Two did not seem to be good. Even at five years old, I knew that. Then I heard something I had never heard before, and it scared me. Mom began to cry. I never heard Mom cry. She was always happy. Our house was always happy. And then I began to think, am I the only one awake? I thought as I lay there in my bed, what is Sue doing? What is Nan doing? They must be asleep. So it was only me and Dad and Mom. And she was crying. I became frightened. But it didn't last long. I then heard Dad say softly to Mom, It will be all right. I could almost hear him take her hand. It would be all right. It was just the way he said it. He had stopped eating. They were silent. I was silent. I was listening. I knew she believed him. I believed him. The way he said it, I stopped being frightened. And soon I fell back to sleep. I fell back to sleep, staring at the new light in the new hallway, as I always did. Rarely, if ever, do I remember waking up at night as a child. Sleep always came easily and soundly to me. It's a blessing. It still does, actually. But that night was different. Apparently, God wanted me to hear that conversation. For that, I am grateful. It was a simple yet profound exchange. It was a simple scene. A man and a wife, late at night, after a long day's work, alone or so they thought. I will never forget that night. I wonder if Dad and Mom remembered it. Dad's gone, but I think I, I will ask Mom the next time I see her. Or maybe not. If I do, it will certainly make her cry. Anytime I mention Dad, it makes Mom cry. She misses him so. When I recall that night, I think about how much Mom and Dad loved one another. It always warms my heart. It was a gift I was awake that night, a gift for which I will always be grateful. As weeks and months and years passed, I grew to understand Dad was right about what he said that night. Everything did, in fact, turn out all right. And the thing that gets me to this very day is he made it all look so easy. And thank you to Bert Rossica and such a stark, simple story. And we've all been there as kids. And my goodness, as adults... We know it, too. Again, send us your stories. They don't have to be big ones, folks. And trust me, this is a big story in its own way. Listen to the resonance and the, and the holding back of tears, practically, of a grown man recounting something he remembers from when he was five. When he was five. So again, send your stories to Our American Network. That's Our American Network. 
and we will put them to music, set them to a to a track, and do what we do best is create radio documentaries. And uh, this is more than podcasts, and you know that because you've listened to podcasts, folks. And this is something very different. We're proud to do it. We have a great team that does it every day. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put our team to work and get these stories back to you. Bert Rossica's story, his mother and father's story, a real love story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope. Some are pretty tough. And some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, in a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w- way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed, so I started uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked, like they always do, uh, because they suck. And he sprayed, and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me, um, but he hit me. And he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time. So blew my femur out of the back of my leg, tossed me in the air, and I'm in the air, and I'm thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. Hit the ground. What did I do? It hurts so bad. And I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer. uh, A witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced. Um, sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out 
Um, and this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevaced with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out of them. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck the gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip, don't do that, not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police, we can't get there quick enough. She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I'd been doing for the majority of my life, and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house, they knew who I was, they knew I had guns and knives. Uh, they had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know. They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So there I am sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me, and I was embarrassed, and I didn't want them to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip, though. If you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you never have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm a, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we've got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, they got staples in them, and you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? You'll probably get a good shot, and you're going to stay there like I did a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things, like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me. Because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in to the hospital, and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy. Navy SEAL commando, and I look at my buddy and I said, hey man, 
I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, first of all, you can't run anymore. (laughs) What a jerk, right? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly, you need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two, you can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I loved. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital, and I go home, uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor. I get retired from the service. Um, Point with all that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in the position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it, but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh my goodness, how many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Brother, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right? who fight for all of us, that's the case. He came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around, having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father. And he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for. 
surrounded by people I loved. And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you Who told you you're allowed to rain on... This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And you've been listening to Barbara Streisand Her terrific performance in the movie and of course the play Funny Girl, she originated the play on Broadway and then knocked it out of the park in her screen performance. And Barbara Streisand was born on this day in history in 1942. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Streisand is one of the great talents in American entertainment history. She could sing. She could act. There was nothing she couldn't do. And my goodness, people have opinions about Streisand, in part, I think, because, well, she has political opinions of her own. But one thing cannot be debated. Ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. It's about as good and as honored as any artist in American history. And joining us to talk about her is the man who wrote about her, Neil Gabler, who wrote Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Welcome to the show, Neil. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip, and someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, and not cockily. It wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded if you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. And she believed in herself against the odds. Here was a little girl who had aspired to show business from you know, the, the, the earliest age and whose own mother told her, Forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. <laughs> it went to someone else who was a, a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her by producers and agents, you're, you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. 
You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. And in some ways, it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, if she looks in that mirror, and when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly, and is told in the movie as well, yep. in the role of Fanny Bryce, mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous. She's not good-looking enough. The same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, and yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, that irony has sort of been subverted. Because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And, and so there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. It's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. We of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your, as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was, it, it was not only the, the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent. And I, I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um, the, the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we, we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I, I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand, in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman, but she's not conventionally beautiful in, in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, she looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. 
Um, and she also behaved in ways, and this I think bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power. She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the fem- femininity. We're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil. Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And, uh, and you're right, so many people are, are great entertainers, uh, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian, at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. Yep. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, aside from you know that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet, submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of... Streisand worked off of feminism, and feminism worked off of Streisand, and she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed, really, our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish, um, but her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power, because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress 
had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world, which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. And, and that she wasn't, in, in that respect, a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those, those tough women of the 40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost, the Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to, Neil. No, no, I would, you're absolutely right. And, and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Beck Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead Barbara right. Yep. I'm not sure there's an Adele mm-hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, and he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists, uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous. unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of, of um, you know, opprobrium that, were, that was hurled at her. But she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil. Uh, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions. But both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him. But here he was <laughs> forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg. And no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And obviously she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she was, she is Brooklyn personified. And there is something, you are rightly, there's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, It's not just a, a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. But it's a way of being. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a toughness, as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York, 
and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time, and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who were, grew up in Brooklyn, grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, and I mean, it was also the, the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and, and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and, and they all somehow learned to coexist there. And that also, I think, toughened them up when they were facing mainstream middle America uh, and, and you know, were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this, these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did a, we did a piece on Yogi Berra, uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people mm-hmm. forget that Italians faced all you know, kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews, uh, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College and, and, yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud for running away from themselves and being comfortable, I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. These people learn how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood. What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get get your reaction to this one, and I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, Let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know, at at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable, his name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that he had a child with Barbara's mother. Uh, Roslyn, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he, and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Roslyn, and the Beast, his stepdaughter, uh, Barbara. And, and so, you know, this is, the, this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged. And if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil, when we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was love. This eager heart of mine was singing. Where can you be? You came at last. Love had its day.
father has a business Strictly second hand Everything from toothpicks To a baby grand Stuff in our apartment Came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing Someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats Second-hand clothes That's why This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. But that wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. Oh my goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, ne- she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I want to add one thing. When, when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary, because that's a, that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that, that would preclude her from ever hitting that, hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was, you know, he's a Bronx boy and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx. And he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on. Uh, that you got to fall forward and you got to believe in yourself and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's. Oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan and she started auditioning and trying to to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even (laughs) though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than Barbara Streisand. But that's that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was, uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is 
uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. here's the thing about her. When we were talking about her, her Brooklyn-ness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when yep. you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought she you... made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the, the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. That's right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy right and this is by the way is the opposite of woody allen who always gets the beautiful woman always yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> well he's another sort of vicariousness <laughs> well that is that is a male vicariousness and that's we, we are dreamers in the end and women well they live on the planet earth <laughs> and again another brooklyn boy woody allen uh, alan Koningsberg. uh by the way sort of he never hid his jewishness in his act neil but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet Italians. Most ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say that because she is so unique an individual that maybe, maybe just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. 
I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy, and she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics I, I, was most, I thought most loathsome was John Simon. And the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man. And I, I, she had to withstand that her entire life, actually, Neil. And, and I think right to the end, there were these, these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're, we're talking to... One of, the, one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand, an Oscar, an Oscar, crazy, crazy talent, but more importantly, just crazy great fortitude and character more about this remarkable life story this is lee habib this is our american stories the life of barbara streisand north and south and east and west of your life i have only one request of your life that you spend it all with me used to be so natural to talk about forever what used to be's don't count anymore they just lay on the floor till we sweep them away baby i remember all the things you taught me i learned how to laugh and i learned how to cry This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. (laughs) You can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame, and it's funny, girl, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming, except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now, that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. And opening night 
was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business. Because that night, Barbara Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path, Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, she's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the female vocalist of the year. So she's, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in all of these different areas, um, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, the Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and you know, every star in Hollywood is there, for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand. And she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> By the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the, the, you know, the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny, too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to, to straddle, is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And, and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who, can, who can straddle those two ex- self-deprecating. You know, she, could, she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but... There is a there is a, a a way in which you know Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond I think between herself and her audience. That's a real talent to have that kind of self awareness too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer is to know how you're perceived and to well get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The songs she sings, even You Don't Send Me Flowers, or People or Cry Me a River, um, you know, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Yep. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra, and there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, mm-hmm. and he was always writing about losers. And that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly, and the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude, too. And it gives us Jack Nicholson, and it gives us Bruce Willis, and it gives us Frank Sinatra, and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City 
that, that just produce this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl. Um, because when I watched this movie, I thought this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this, this manifests itself as something that I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies, almost all of her movies, let me, let me, uh, let me put in that little proviso, you know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal, but Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, you know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had um, had relationships. Yep. You know, she was just too tough. Yep. Too tough, um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her yes. strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, as I remember the movie, she, she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was a dramatic device, and it was a brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbra Streisand album. (laughs) They didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience. And, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman exactly. and submissive. And then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song, uh, No Wonder He Loves Her, but she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. 
and and the 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 first rendition of that song in its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed, and that what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil, and I think that may be her greatest characteristic, and I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity and Power, thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. And what a life, what a story. And thank you, Neil Gabler, and his terrific book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Go to Amazon and pick it up. You will not put it down. And what an American story, folks. What an American original. Whatever you think of Barbara Streisand's politics, and people do. In this great country, we put these things aside and share in the greatness and the real talent, the God-given talent that this woman did. She revolutionized show business, folks and took it to a level well no one had ever thought this girl from Brooklyn could. Barbara Streisand's story, a classic, a quintessential American story. She was born on this day in history in 1942. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Barbara Streisand's life story here on Our American Stories. Sky was blue and high above. The moon was new, so was love. This eager heart of mine was singing.